sometimes, if we're not careful, uh, we can treat the Bible like uh, we would uh, go to a smorgasbord or a buffet where we just would pick and choose what we want and what agrees with us and what doesn't. One of my favorite memories growing up was Friday nights when it was payday and dad would take us to Western Sizzlin'. Do you remember that place? Western Sizzlin'. And so just those fun buffet, you get some, especially when you're like 12 years old, you could just eat forever, it felt like. And I always looked forward to the ice cream machine where you'd get the ice cream and, and the broken up Oreos and the, the M&Ms that once they got the, hit the ice cream were hard as a rock. Uh, and then the hot fudge and sprinkled some chopped nuts. I really just, that was one of my favorite memories growing up. Uh, but if we're not careful, I think sometimes we can treat the Bible much like that smorgasbord where we'll just pick and choose. And Jesus says, that's not the way it works. And we want to take you to our next section of scripture here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And Jesus is going to say, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I came to fulfill the law. And so I just want us to read this text, and then we're going to walk through what that looks like for us today. So again, this is Jesus' words to his disciples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray and ask God's word to God to guide us as we study his word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this word. Lord, I pray that we could interact with you, that we can grow deeper, that we can just understand the truth that is in you. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, guide our conversation this morning. I pray that I would get out of the way so that people could hear you. We want you to become greater. We love you, Jesus. Help us, we pray. Amen. As we look at through these four verses, Matthew 17 through 20, it really breaks down into two areas, two ways, uh, two relationships. And the first one is Jesus and his relationship with the law. And the second is the, the, the relationship that his followers have with the law. So we're going to look at Jesus and the law, Christians and the law. And this is another way of saying the instructions of the Old Testament could be a way to describe it. And so I would say this first way from Matthew chapter 5, 17, 18, is that Jesus goes further to fulfill the law. Jesus goes further to fulfill the law, and then later it's going to, he's going to ask his disciples to go deeper. So Jesus goes further to fulfill the law, verses 17 and 18. It's interesting as we walk through these verses in Matthew's gospel, that as Jesus teaches, you know, the crowds come, he sits down on the mountain, much like a Moses-type figure, and the disciples come to him, and he teaches them, and he starts just speaking generically, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. And so he's going to start talking about generically, and then he's going to start saying, now blessed are you, verse 11, 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's the first reference to Jesus that he's directing himself in a sermon. He's also going to say, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then in verse 17, he says, okay, I'm here. But don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And this theme of fulfilling the law or the Old Testament is a theme in Matthew's gospel. I just want to walk through those first. We're going to look kind of bookend Matthew's gospel for the next few minutes. Just look at those first few chapters, chapters 1 and 2. Then we're going to go to chapter 21, 26, 27. Uh, and just see how, how Matthew wants to frame Jesus as one who fulfills the, the, the plans of God. Are you following me? So if you just look at Matthew chapter 1, you see at the very beginning, the beginning of the good news, the genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew wants, wants us to see Jesus as this one who's a king, son of David, also son of Abraham. He's the one that fulfills the promise, the blessing that God has given from Genesis 12 forward. So even in this opening verse, he's saying Jesus is fulfilling what God has already said earlier in the Old Testament. And then we have this long list of names. Why is that important? Because Jesus fulfills God's plan. Then you go down to verse 22 of Matthew chapter 1. It talks about all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So even in this prophecy of Jesus' birth, we have this idea that Jesus fulfills it. Then in chapter 2, the, the Magi come from the east. They ask King Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They ask, Herod comes and calls the teacher of the law. In verse 5, they reply, in Bethlehem in Judea, they, they replied, for this was what, the, pro, what was the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he's saying, okay, remember Jesus. He's the one the prophets talk about. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. You go to chapter 2, verse 17, and Herod realizes he's been outwitted by the Magi, and he orders the, the baby boys ages 2 and under to be killed. Verse 17, chapter 2. Then was, fulfilled, was said through the prophet Jeremiah, was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So even in the birth narrative of, of Jesus, we see him fulfilling prophecy. This is the, what Jesus has come to do. You go to the latter part of his life, Matthew chapter 21. Go to Matthew chapter 21, verse 4. He's going to say, okay, fellas, go get me a donkey. I'm going to go right into Jerusalem. This took place, Matthew 21, verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Matthew's saying, okay, remember this whole idea that Jesus comes to fulfill the prophets. You go a couple more chapters, chapter 26, verses 55 and 56. This is when Jesus is arrested in the garden. He's arrested. 
And he asked them this question, Matthew 26, verse 55. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all his disciples deserted him and fled. Jesus says, Don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then verse 9 of chapter 27, Matthew's gospel. After Judas has some remorse for betraying Jesus, he recognizes, I've sinned, I've betrayed innocent blood. He throws those coins into the temple. Verse, 20, verse, uh, verse 9, Then was fulfilled by the prophet Jeremiah. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set by him, on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. So from birth up to his death, Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, the, the stories of the Old Testament. So Jesus goes further to fulfill. Well, I said I didn't come to abolish. I didn't come to rip up the Old Testament. No, I'm come to fulfill it. If you want to take you to one more uh, text from 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and following. When I preach sermons every once in a while, I just kind of I say, okay, if, does this sermon connect with one of our core values here at Berlin Christian Church? And if I were to, to lay a core value over this sermon, it would be that we value the Bible as God's word. We value the authority of God's word. And here again, it's, it says it here in verse, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 14 and following. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures. Holy Scriptures that he's referring to is the Old Testament. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead... And in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Does that sound like where we live today? And so it's important for us to remember that we have God's word, that Jesus fulfills the law. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus' mission to be accomplished. And so I have a study with uh, Christopher Wright this week. He gives us three reasons why we should study and value the Old Testament. And I just want to remind us, because every once in a while, let's be honest, uh, Old Testament's hard. There's some confusing language. There's a lot of laws and rituals that we don't understand too much. And other people just simply call it the Hebrew Bible. That might be a good way to describe it too. And so it's just, it's just foreign for us. But what are some reasons why we should study the Hebrew Bible, study the Old Testament? He says, one, the Old Testament comes to us from God. It starts out, Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
So we're going to learn about who God is through the Old Testament. Number two, Old Testament lays foundations of our faith. It says those holy scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the reason we can have some understanding of why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Well, you read your Old Testament, you're going to find out some of those reasons. And number three, the Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus. It's the Bible he read, the Bible he studied from, the Bible he preached from and memorized. And so it teaches us about Jesus. As Jesus concludes this sermon in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, the people are amazed and it says that Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as the other teachers. So Jesus goes further to fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Second, we look at verses 19 to 20. His disciples are called to go deeper in relationship to the law. The law could be the instructions of the Old Testament, the instructions of God. So he says there, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those teachers of the law, they had lots of, they had counted all the rules in the Old Testament. All the, the things you should do, the commands, the things you should not do. 248 commands they counted, 368, 365 prohibitions. Don't do this. One for every day of the year, apparently. And so they were experts on knowing the rules. And they were experts in finding ways around the rules to make the permissive ones more permissive and to kind of give them some, some loopholes into checking the box but really not having to do what they were called to do. And there's a danger. And Jesus is saying, if you set aside one of the least of these commands and teach others accordingly, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson put out his The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. He went through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and much like this uh, silly skit, he had a knife and he cut out the things that didn't fit into his worldview. He didn't believe in miracles, so he cut out all the miracles. Some of the teachings of Jesus he cut out, and he published this, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And he would read this daily. And other people have said the Bible or the, the gospel that Jefferson read, the blind do not see, the lame do not walk, sins are not forgiven, and Jesus does not walk out of the grave. Is that the Bible we believe in? Is that the Bible we read? Or do we believe that Jesus has power? We believe in all of Scripture, all of the counsel of God. Sky Jathani, he writes uh, in a book, um, What If Jesus Was Serious? He says, Christians have at least two Bibles. We have our actual Bible, Genesis, Revelation, 66 books. And then he says, we have a functional Bible, which is sort of the books that we, we read regularly, but others. This is for later, I think. Yeah, I'll come back to that Scripture later, so... You can go on the 
I'll make that go away for now. So <laughs> that's another Sky Jathani one for later. So, but he, uh, he says, you know, we've got our, our Bible, but then we've got the Bible we really read, you know, which, you know, a lot of times we say we're New Testament Christians, so we don't need the Old Testament or it's boring or whatever. We'll read, you know, the Gospels and some letters to Paul, maybe a Psalm or two, and that's kind of our Bible. Um, and the goal is, you know, we need all of God's Word. And when we preach and when we lay out our sermons for the year, uh, Michael can attest to this because I'm kind of rigorous on, okay, we've got 52 Sundays. How many Old Testament texts do we have here? Because I want to make sure that we're talking about the Old Testament here because it's a lot of the Bible, like two-thirds of our Bible is the Old Testament. And so I think it's important for us to have a balanced diet as we attempt to teach the whole counsel of God. And so uh, I just, I try to, I go through and count like, okay, is the, do the numbers add up fair? You know, are we kind of having it or is it just New Testament heavy? And so I love reading the Old Testament looking for Jesus. I just do. I like to say, okay, where do we see God's plan of salvation moving along in the story of, of the Old Testament? I think it's fun, uh, but it's a challenge. I'll be honest. It's, it takes some work. And so, but we can do it. And so there is a strong, strong need for us to study this Bible, this word from God. And there's a need, and I'm thankful for Michael sharing some of these stats with, with me from, from the um, Lakeside Christian, no, Lake Springfield Christian Assembly had the midwinter retreat last week, and there were some helpful things. So question, what percentage of Gen Z, uh, those who were born between 1995 and 2012, have a biblical worldview? And so, you know, this is, you know, my kids' age group and, and older, and some of those that are new moms and dads right now with their, their kids and down to Hope. Hope was born in 2012, so that's kind of your window here. So new moms and dads and uh, uh, to Hope, uh, that's who it is. And so they're asking, you know, do you have a biblical worldview, which just means do you go to the Bible for the answers to the big questions of, of, of life? You know, does God exist? How does everything begin? What's wrong with the world? What's the ultimate solution? Who am I, your identity? Why am I here? Am I living a good life? What happens after I die? Do you go to the Bible for those answers or does it matter? That's what we're, one of the ways to look at a biblical worldview. It says from one study, 4% of this generation has a biblical worldview. And I'm not one of these guys to pile on to the, these young kids nowadays. I'm not one of those guys. I'm not, okay? It just says that there's a need for these young families and young kids and everyone to realize that the Bible has some things to say to these big questions of life. Here's another scary one. Dr. Knopp from Lincoln Christian University shared this. He says, only 10% of faithful church-going teens graduate high school with a biblical worldview. So it means the kids that grow up in the church, they go to youth group, they go to Sunday school. Only 10% of them graduate high school and say, yeah, I think the Bible can help me figure out stuff with life. That's the church kids. Here's another stat that's scary too. Uh, and this is a, a Barna study. Uh, but it says two-thirds, 67% of parents of preteens, so if you're a preteen and you claim to be a Christian, only 2% actually possess a biblical worldview. So there's two-thirds say, yeah, we're Christians. We're Christians. We, we love Jesus in our family. But only 2% really say that this book has the answers, that this book guides our life. 
Is there a problem? Yeah, and I get, you know, stats, you can kind of make, say, a lot of stuff, so I'm not trying to uh, hang everything on it, but it does say that we have a need to raise up generation of people that love Jesus and study the Bible and look to it for the answers to the big questions of life. So Jesus says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's one of the reasons why we have things like Sunday school, Sunday morning jam at 9 o'clock, where we've got classes for all ages. That's why we do things like youth group. That's why we do things like men's uh, mug group in the mornings on Wednesdays and women's discipleship groups and, and men's discipleship groups and teen discipleship groups. Those are reasons because we just want to get some Bible into our lives more. Ultimately, it's families you know the church we aren't fully responsible for you in a sense it's the family response but we can help bring you along in understanding god's word as we study and so we have this important it says not only just doing it but practicing it and teaching it there's a responsibility to teach others and if you set aside others set aside some things and teach others those things aren't really important that's a problem, he says. But if you practice it and teach others, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we can go to our picture with the monkeys, if you want to go back there. And so this is another Sky Jathani quote. And he just says, uh, There's a difference between doing good and being good. And so he's got the picture, See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Or external rules versus internal grace, desire for no evil at all. So it's the idea, am I just checking the boxes? I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to speak it. I'm not going to hear it. But I might cultivate it in my heart. And he's like, no, we need to have our hearts transformed. So there's this deeper righteousness that Jesus is calling his people to. This righteousness is a theme that is throughout this Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 6 is the first time he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our text here in verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 6, verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then my favorite verse, chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is calling us deeper, a righteousness that is in the heart. There's another prophecy that is fulfilled. Jeremiah 31, 33. Jeremiah 31, 33. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with her ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33. This is a covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God. They will be my people. Jesus calls his kingdom followers to a deeper righteousness from his heart. Jesus calls us to a deeper righteousness from his heart. So here's this big picture here of like, you've got to, your righteousness must exceed the most religious people of the day. How's that going to happen? And there's us over here. But the good news is, Jesus is in the middle. And standing between the righteousness that he's calling us to and us is our loving Savior, the one who fulfilled it all and gives us his goodness. And so we can seek him because he's the one that fulfills and embodies this whole sermon that's difficult to hear and understand. So how do we know the heart of Jesus? I've got three suggestions. One, read his word, all of it. Not just the things we like, but there's some difficult teachings that we just need to hear. And so if it's been a while since you've cracked some of that Old Testament, maybe this would be a week to, to look at it and, and get with some other Christ followers and say, hey, can you help me think through some of this? Because there's a lot to parse through, but big picture, it's, it's beautiful. Number two, trust his word. Trust Jesus. He loves you and has fulfilled the prophet's. And then there seems to be a responsibility and an assumption that we will teach his word. There in verse 19, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So who in your circle of influence? Think of the circles in your life. You've got maybe your family, maybe your coworkers, your neighbors, people that you hang out with, maybe go to the gym, socialize, some of those different types of circles. Who in those circles is, do you need to teach something to them about this week? Not in an arrogant, braggadocious way, but just say, hey, here's what I'm learning. I thought maybe it'd be helpful for you to share with you as well. So I want to pray, but I just want to commend you, Berlin Church. Love you. Let's pray that we can continue to embody this sermon that he's given to us. Uh, that he, these, Jesus calls his kingdom followers to a deeper righteousness from his heart. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. And I want to pray that we could value the truth of, of your word, of who you are. Thankful for how you're moving. And so Lord, I pray for repentance. I pray for encouragement for those who are discouraged. I pray that you would lift up the lonely. Oh Lord, I pray you'd convict us of, of sin, but also remind us of your unfailing love and grace and that righteousness that is before us. Help us to live well by your grace. Thank you, Jesus.